what you're about to hear is unsupervised. Welcome back to Season 2, Episode 2 of Stanley Cup of Chowder's Unsupervised Podcast. I'm your host, Colin Beswick. I'm joined today by uh, Stanley Cup of Chowder editor and frequent host, Jake Reiser. Jake, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. It finally feels like fall and finally feels like hockey season. So I'm glad that we're getting back in the swing of things. Yep, just when we get started, it, it seems like the Bruins are off for a week again, right when we get back into the swing of things. But it's good to have hockey back on, even if it's not the Bruins. I'm also joined today by um, new host and uh, frequent contributor to Stanley Cup of Chowder, Sean Ferris. He's also a contributor to HockeyGraphs.com, which is also a great site. You want to check that out. Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, Colin. Thanks for joining us. I did want to mention that uh, both uh, Jake and Sean can be found on Twitter. Sean is at the Sean Ferris. Sean is spelled S-H-A-W-N. Last name is Ferris, F-E-R-R-I-S. And uh, Jake, if you're not already following him, is at Jake, uh, last name Riser, R-E-I-S-E-R. Make sure to give him a follow. They have tons of great input on all things NHL and Bruins related. Uh, especially with Sean, too, a lot of the uh, quote-unquote fancy stat stuff that you're getting used to seeing on our site. So uh, welcome aboard, both of you guys. Happy to start talking some Bruins. We'll start off with some listener questions that uh, we got from some of our listeners. Um, the first is probably an obvious one and one we would have touched on um, anyways, and that's should the Bruins break up, you know, what is really, the I think, the best line in hockey and, and Bergeron, Marchand, and Pasternak. What do you guys think? you think that it'll last uh, for most of the season, or is it something where they're going to have to split it up to, to spread the depth? Uh, I think it's time to break it up. Uh, I just don't think – I don't think they have enough depth. I would like to see Pasenak either with Krejci or on his own line. Um, so I, I suggested it, I believe, Tuesday – um, after the Senators game and uh, commenters weren't like too happy with the idea of Pasenak on his own line. Um, but I think the popular opinion for those who like to split it up is Pasenak with Krejci and DeBrus, which sounds like a very, very good line. Um, you know, but I think the idea behind that is, you know, Marshawn and Bergeron are going to be just fine with basically anybody on, on their wing as like a third you know, third guy, just like how the Caps do with Ovechkin and Kuznetsov. I mean, they have like Brett Conley there. Um, they were having like Tom Wilson there, um, you know, who just, they're not first line forwards, but it works out. It's still, you know, offensive. So you could have two firepower lines if you put Pasenak down with Krejci and DeBrus. And they also, you know, Krejci and DeBrus also have more offensive minutes. So I think you're using Pasternak more effectively on the second line too. Yeah, it's certainly not the first time you've mentioned it for those of us in the Stanley Cup of Chowder Slack channel that we have. Uh, we're constantly talking in throughout the week. Um, I've come around to it a little bit. Um, I was definitely not on board to start, but um, Sean has swayed me a little bit towards that. I do think Pasta is the kind of talent that he can he can sort of carry his own line offensively if, if need be. He's that good. But, uh, Jake, curious, what do you think? Should uh, they keep the top line together, split it up? If so, where do you think Pasta should play? I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. 
as much as I agree with some of your points that being able to spread that wealth would be really nice, this currently is one of the top scoring lines in the entirety of the NHL, let alone within the conference, within the division. It's the league as a whole. This line is so good. It feels like it's unstoppable. Pasternak has the ability to be creative and make plays. Marshan is still a little bit of his pesky self as a four checker, but again, gets some room to work around on the wing. And Bergeron opens everything up for both of these guys. So I think it's got to stay together for as long as you can, because if you move Pasternak down, yeah, Bergeron and Marshan are going to be totally fine just the same. By the way, I don't know whether it's Marchand or Marchand. I feel like Jack Edwards is flipping it on us five different times, but we can get to that later. Yeah, um, he's, he's totally trolling people at this point. But I, <laughs> I firmly believe that uh, Brad is just changing it year over year to mess with people. But I feel like if, yes, those two will be fine, but you're just going to have the same problem you have on the second line right now. Who is the winger that's going to complete that trio? Yeah, Ber- Bergeron and Marchand are going to be good, but... You need that trio to work really well in order to maintain its efficiency, and I just don't know who you'd put there. Yeah, I mean, you you certainly have choices, although a lot of the young forwards haven't really stood out yet. I mean, there's always uh, Bjork, like last season, Donato, who's been in and out of the lineup. There's the dark horse that a few of us at Chowder like, and Solaric as well down in the AHL. But you're right, you don't know if it's going to work out, and to a certain extent, like I said, you don't want to mess with something that's working so well. But when I think of this question, um, I sort of look at it as right now it's all gravy. Obviously, that line is dominating. But their schedule thus far hasn't really been that challenging. And that's where I look at it and say, like, they may be able to get away with not having as much depth through the second, third, and fourth line right now. But as the season wears on and they start facing um, a much tougher schedule later in the year, are they going to be able to, you know, keep piling up wins if they are a one-line team. We saw it in the playoffs last year, and I, I think it's a it's a legitimate concern, but we know that, that Butch has mentioned you know, he would prefer to keep the top line together. I just don't know if they can go the whole year without having to make some sort of adjustments there. Yeah, and I mean, I mentioned it in the Slack this morning, and I also tweeted it out, but you know, the goals are going in right now, but at least at even strength, the offense hasn't been terrific right now. Um, they're 27th at expected shooting percentage. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to be kind of uh, fancy stats. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Go for it. they're having trouble getting to high-quality areas. And so a lot of their shots right now are coming from the perimeter, and they're really playing like a defense-first game. They take less shot attempts per hour than league average, you know, but they're so good defensively that they're able to, to outpossess um, their opponents. And so, you know, not that it's like a worry, because again, we're talking about, you know, a small sample of five games and that the pucks are going in, you know, but I, it, there is some underlying concern, I guess you will, of this offense. And I think it really kind of, that comes out more with not really having a third line that you'd like, um, you know, and the young guys not necessarily coming out as you expected, um, you know, but I mean, there is some concern. It's not as bright. It hasn't been as bright of a five games or four because Washington game was terrible, um, but it hasn't been, you know, as bright of four games as I think it's being made out to be. 
And I'm assuming Bruce Cassidy knows that um, they have data provided by Sports Logic, and I'm sure he's looking into it, um, and, and that that'll play a part in this decision making process. It, it, it's such a tough question because you're right. I think the issues that plague the third line affect the top two because you wish D- Danton Heinen, uh, Ryan Donato, Anders Bjork, one of those guys would step up and maybe prove himself a little better than that station. And then you can kind of flip flop the lines around and get a little bit more depth. But none of them have exceeded beyond any expectations. So you're right. It kind of creates a conundrum with those top two lines as well. Yeah, there were a couple of points I wanted to make, too. And the, the first is that, uh, you know, unfortunately, injuries are, are part of you know, NHL hockey. And this problem may sort of sort itself out in that regard. Uh, with injuries, they may be forced to, to make lineup changes as a result of that anyways, and or in spite of, I should say. But the other thing, too, is that uh, keep in mind that we're only a few games into the season so far. And so a lot of the results and and the stats and everything like that are obviously coming with a, a small sample size warning. It uh, doesn't mean we won't overanalyze them and have some fun with them, but uh, we're aware of that too. So, you know, a lot of this stuff we're, we're sort of taking it at face value, but um, before we dive into some more of our listener questions, I did want to talk about the Bruins schedule. It's something that we wrote about at StanleyCupOfChowder.com uh, to just sort of pointing out that the Bruins current uh, stretch of games is, you know, probably the easiest stretch they're going to have, breaking it down by 10-game increments. Um, you know, they they already beat the Oilers and absolutely put a beat down on the Red Wings, uh, which I think we all knew weren't going to be great, but uh, they did not look like an NHL team against the Bruins. Um, and they've got games against Flames, Oilers again, Canucks, Suns, Flyers, the Canadians, Hurricanes, and then a one or two games against the Predators this season. So the good thing about that is that they're facing a lot of uh, mediocre or worse teams in that stretch with the outside of the the Predators. But the downside is that they're going to face, you know, Florida Panthers, the Leafs and Tampa Bay Lightning. Almost all of their 12 total matchups against them are going to be in the second half of the season. So there's, there's pros and cons to that that it allows the Bruins to sort of figure out their roster now and, to get into a rhythm and, and hopefully pile up some points. But on the flip side, it's going to be a tough second half of the season leading into hopefully the playoffs. So, you know, when I mentioned that uh, some of the results are are small sample size too, is the Bruins haven't exactly beaten any real great teams. And the one real good team they played absolutely destroyed them on opening night. So uh, it's an interesting schedule so far, but uh, hopefully the Bruins can take advantage of this uh, these next few games and sort of build a cushion, uh, you know, on the standings early in the season before they start matching up against their other Atlantic um, opponents. The... Yeah. I mean, I think also that these, the so many days between games right now is also really playing to their advantage. Um, you know, cause you look, the team's not in the shape that I think it wants to be in even though they're they're winning hockey games, um, you know, and so it gives them kind of time to, to reflect on things, to make adjustments, to get their mind off things through um, through charity, right? They, I think they had a bunch of kids at Warrior today, um, you know, but they're always out in the community and it kind of like gets their mind off of things. So I think 
having time between games right now is certainly helping them get into that season form. Um, you know, and you're talking one of their best players in Tory Krug's out with injuries right now. So in a way, you're also hoping that it'll be a stronger team uh, once you hit that schedule, once you hit like the tougher part. Yeah, like I said, that's definitely part of the the benefit of the scheduling the way it is now. Um, outside of being, you know, from a fan perspective, it can be frustrating that there's so many games off in between. And then, you know, this week they're going on a, a West Coast swing, so the games will be nine, nine thirty, and ten p.m. starts, if I remember correctly, which is always tough for local fans, um, you know, to be able to watch and keep up. But one of the benefits is that it gives Bruce Cassidy and his staff time to sort of mess around and figure out particularly what he wants to do with that, that third line. We've already seen a few different variations on it. You know, obviously the Bruins thought that one of JFK, Trent Frederick, or, uh, you know, what my dark horse pick was and, and Studnika would be able to come in and take that third line role. As we all know, that didn't happen. And they started the season with uh, Corrali as the de facto third line center, which lasted about a, a game, maybe two. Two games, yeah. Two games, and we're we're back to the six million dollar man and David Dacus playing in the third line center, the role that he was originally brought here for, but really hasn't spent a lot of time doing. So, I mean, no matter what variation they tried, it hasn't really been a sterling result for any of those those third lines. So I think this gives Bruce a chance to figure out to whatever extent he can, what, what he wants to do with that third line. But I think you guys would agree that that third line hasn't exactly been great. Is that correct? Yeah. No, I mean, I just that, that the third line has been disappointing to say the least between whatever rotation of players he's thrown in there. Danton Heinen hasn't been producing a ton of points. David Backus has looked marginally better, and the fact that he doesn't look like he's uh, 300 pounds lugging himself up and down the ice, that he actually moves a little bit better, but what difference has that made? Uh, Bjork, Corrali, um, the Chris Wagner even, the variations haven't been perfect so far. Yeah, I think disappointing is, is more than fair to say. And again, small sample size, we're not trying to bag on and any particular players or anything, but uh, in terms of looking at it from a line perspective, that third line's consistently been generally the, the Bruins' worst line and quite often has been outplayed by that fourth line with Corrali and Achari and, and Wagner and so on playing. So that's, that's uh, you know, cause for some concern again, it's early, but that's something I think we all have our eyes on here. And to your, to your point about Bacchus, um, I think that, we all get caught up in the whole contract aspect of that player, but it's not that he's not a, you know, still a, a decent NHL player. He can be. Um, it's just, I think we, we sort of get lost in the whole contract and what he's paid versus what he's actually performing. We did have a, a long, interesting conversation about Heinen in our Stanley Cup of Chowder chat the other day as well, which is interesting because we all obviously have players that were, were higher on or lower on versus, you know, other writers from the site. I happen to be a, a pretty high on Danton Heine, and I have been for a while. I think the thing with him, and he hasn't been great, admittedly he hasn't, but I think he brings sort of a well-rounded aspect to his game that he's very responsible defensively, and he's probably not going to wow you offensively, 
But even if the points aren't coming, he still plays a bit of a complete game where I don't think that that's always the case with, you know, Ryan Donato and to a lesser extent Bjork. So it's always interesting to see how, how people feel about the young kids. Um, I'm curious what you guys would do. You know, what do you think the best third line is going forward? Um, I mean, I'm still, I like the idea of Pasternak on his own line and be able to roll all four lines and kind of make things situational. And I'd like a player like Danton Heinen on his wing, you know, but the unsatisfying thing is having David Backus centering him. You know, that that's kind of the problem there. Um, you could, I like the idea of Bjork with um, Bergeron and then Pasternak on the second line, which would leave Heinen, Donato, and Bacchus. But I, I just can't see that necessarily working either. I, I mean, I think the the problem with with the whole thing is, is that Bacchus is a relatively slow player. Um, and so I think that you have fast wingers, it kind of, I don't know, tears you away from that. What's interesting, and I'm looking at the roster on the website as it is right now, both Danton Heinen and Joachim Nordstrom are actually listed as centers and not wingers. And while I admit that, I think Danton Heinen is going to stay on the wing because I think he's played a lot better there. I would be intrigued to see Joachim Nordstrom take a shot at third line center. And so from left to right, you'd go Danton Heinen, Joachim Nordstrom. And Chris Wagner honestly hasn't looked awful in his short time in Boston. But I'd flip flat back and forth whether you put Bacchus on the right wing so you're not having him skate 200 feet or Chris Wagner just because he looked decent enough in the first five games of the season. That's a, that's a name that I, we haven't seen a lot of um, in Nordstrom as, as third-line center. And one I hadn't given a lot of thought myself, honestly, but I'd be interested to see, uh, you know, how that may work, give it a game or two. The Bruins, as we know, have about, you know, 20 centers on their roster. Practically every forward they have either is a current center or played center at a high level. Um, but with, with Heinen, I think he at the NHL level, he's, he's definitely a wing. But with Nordstrom, he's a true center and can – can absolutely play center. So I'd be curious to see that with Wagner. He has, he's exceeded uh, what I expected from him early in the season, but I, I still think that he's a fourth line player. I think he, he's probably best suited and the team is best suited if he stays on that fourth line. And I, I think that fourth line has played well together too with Crowley and Achari. So you could, you could certainly do Nordstrom with, you know, Bacchus and one of the kids high uh, on the other side. That would be interesting. Uh, look at it you know again small sample size but you look at the five five on five uh you know Corsi four percentage it's it's not surprising to see that you know Bjork, Heinen, Corrali, Donato and Bacchus are are by far the the worst showing so far through uh five games so the Bruins definitely need more out of that third line and as great as the first line is you know they're not going to be able to carry them against you know playoff level opponents so, I mean, it'll be interesting. I, I have a feeling we're going to see quite a few different variations throughout the year, but I don't know what the the final result will be if there is one. Maybe they will, you know, sort of continue to tinker with it throughout the year. That'll bring us uh, – we'll get into the, 
the topic of the the week, the season, the the decade. And uh, is there a, a goalie controversy in Boston, which was a, another listener question and one that you can't avoid if you log into Twitter for any amount of time. Um, I'm going to, I'm just going to say no <laughs> right off the bat. I, I'm going to say no. That being said, uh, it's been a very interesting start for Bruins goaltenders so far. Um, you know, Tuca hasn't played well at all, frankly. And Talak, who, you know, has primarily been thought of as, you know, a good backup or, or sort of an average starter has been among probably the top three or four best goaltenders so far this season. So it's sort of flip-flop from what I think a lot of people expected to start the season. But, uh, you know, we've, we've written about it here as well that I think Halak is a lot better than he's gotten credit for due to the, the teams he's played behind. And, you know, we know Rask generally doesn't start strong, you know, generally. And I don't know. I don't know what you guys think. I'm curious to think, but anyone worried about it? Is there any real controversy here? Or is it just a matter of small sample sizes? Um, um, I would go a small sample size on this one. We're seriously five games in the season. And yeah, uh, Halak is doing a great job and Rask does take some time to warm up, but you signed Halak to be the backup, and we we put so much faith in Tukarask so far, and he's being paid to be a starter. So it's the same argument with David Backus. You're paying him to be more than what he's actually producing. Tuka at least has the opportunity to play closer to what we're paying him to be a starting goaltender. So I don't see Halak having any way, or I don't think he's even thought of stealing the starting job from Rask, to be honest. I wouldn't be surprised come April that Halak is the starting goalie. Uh, I mean, I just don't I, – I think Halak is the better goalie. Um, he was behind an absolutely horrid defense for the last couple of years in the Islanders. Um, you know, so when you kind of adjust for that, when you look at traditional stats like goals against average or save percentage, you know, they just don't – they don't adjust for, for the defense in front of you, for the the time they're playing on the on the power uh well on the penalty kill, you know, against power play shots, you know, all these different things. You know he he's had terrible usage whereas Rask has had the best usage um really in the league. And I mean you put in a ton of research on this, Colin, so I don't know if if he ended up top in the league or if he was just kind of like top five or, or what exactly it was, but he has some of the best usage out of any goaltender and basically has, you know, somewhat average results for a starting goaltender. Whereas I think Halak, if he was given the, the uh, starting job, I think he'd perform better. And yeah. I, I mean, I don't think it's, it's seen as though he'll take away the job. Um, but I think, if Halak performs better and, you know, he has a long resume as a starting goaltender, then I wouldn't be surprised come April if, in fact, Halak starts, if he ends up being the starter going into the playoffs. Yeah, I'm sort of in the middle on this, and my, my position on Tuca is pretty well known <laughs> in this area. But um, I, I, think it, I, I think it's misguided. I think people think that you don't like Tuca. Like, I think it gets way too out of hand. Whereas, I mean, I think Tuca is just not as good as what he used to be, which, I mean, he could get to that level again, um, you know, and you hope for that. But 
he's still a good goaltender. It's just Halak seems to be, you know, an even better one. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of – I wouldn't say I'm in the middle. I'm probably closer to, to where you are in terms of my view on Rask and, and Halak both. But I think what fans and are leery of is the the annual trade Tuca, the annual is there a goalie controversy cut and paste articles we've seen year after year. And and I think all three of us will be among the first to tell you we're not fans of that either. That That's not how we feel generally. We don't necessarily like, you know, that, that seems to be a yearly topic or, you know, at least speaking for myself, that's how I feel. That being said, I think this is the first time you know, in years that you go into a season, you say, okay, well, there actually is a chance that Rask loses a starting job this year. And yeah, it's only been five games. But like you said, Halak has a long resume of being a, a starting quality goaltender behind legitimately some of the worst defenses in the league. Whereas Rask has played behind easily some of the best defenses in the league year in and year out. And it's interesting to see sort of how the perception on Rask is changing due in part to his aging, but also in part to some of the the more analytically focused coverage that's that's out there. You know, not just, you know, what we've written, what I've written, but even, you know, Andrew Berkshire writes uh, his yearly, uh, you know, top position rankings for Sportsnet. And Tuca wasn't even ranked in his top 20, which, you know, caught a lot of people off guard. I actually, I spoke to Andrew about it, and he had Rask as his 32nd best goaltender. And now I, I, I stretch. yeah, I agree. I, 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 I mean, but it depends on on the time and how you weigh different things. I mean, right? Not, that I think fans sort of skip through the the methodology too quickly sometimes, and you know, no analysis is perfect, mine included, and you you do have to look at the methodology. And I I think we're all in agreement that Rask is definitely not quite that low. You know, he's he's not a, you know, he's not Cam Ward. He's not the worst starting goaltender in the league, but I think it's, it's probably about time that, you know, even the staunchest Rask fans are starting to come around to the realization to your point that, you know, goals against average and save percentage aren't the best way to measure, you know, a goalie's performance because it lacks virtually any context in terms of, you know, the workload they're facing, the type of shots they're facing, so on and so forth. I did, I did pull up numbers just so we, we have a little bit of that statistical analysis, you know, again, small sample size, but in almost, virtually the same amount of ice time rask has a negative 2.45 goal saved against average versus halak has a positive 3.77 goal saved above average so that that's a huge swing between the two of them they're both sort of on the opposite spectrums whereas rask that's very negative for the time frame and halak's is among the best in the league you know and in terms of their expected save percentage are both roughly the same at, at about nine uh, 9-10. Um, Rask is very obviously below that. He's sitting at, you know, spot 8-8-1, whereas Halak is at uh, 960 at this point. So, you know, there, there's a huge disparity, and I do think that Halak's going to surprise a lot of people. I'm probably going to say that on every single episode that we record this year uh, to, until people get sick of me. But that being said, I, I fully expect that Rask is going to start having some good games putting in here and uh you know it'll start getting a lot closer as we go on not to say that i want a 1a1b situation because i can see where lots of teams have tried that and lots of teams have failed trying to do that 
But looking at what happened last year, Anton Kudobin started 29 games for the Bruins. And it seemed to give Rask a little bit better of a chance when he started. And so in an ideal world, with a backup that I now consider better than Anton Kudobin of last year, I would like to see Hawk start 35 to 40 games if he's still considered the backup, even 42. And you can literally split it right down the middle and go half and half and give guys a good workload. Because I think that both of them operate a little bit better when they have a little bit uh, more time in the rotation. So I'm splitting it somewhere around half, 55% to 45%, 50-50 each, would give them both the right opportunity to thrive and show their best when they're on. And then when they're not on, it gives the other guy a really good chance to show why he needs to earn the ice time. So that would be my best case scenario as far as the goaltending goes this year, Colin. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Doby, and I've said it before, but I wish him well and with the stars, but I don't think it's really up for debate that Halak is a, a better uh, goaltender at, at their respective stages of their careers. And I, I agree. I, I would be shocked if Halak gets less than 32 or so starts and he, he could, like you said, be up to 40 or, or so as well. Right now they're splitting it a game on a game off. They both played three uh, games so far. So, I mean, we'll see. We'll, we'll see how that goes. My thing is I, we wish them both. Well, we hope they both play well. You know, it'd be great to to have a team where there's a really strong duo back. You know, towards the Thomas and Rask era. Um, but you know, if if one does struggle, you'd like to think that the other one is capable of carrying the team for long stretches of time. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how the ice time does get doled out in terms of the two goaltenders, and you know, if if Halak does outplay Rask as he's done so far, will he continue to get to get the call or? Will Rask get start sort of as the de facto starter until, you know, maybe they can't afford to, if he keeps struggling. So that's definitely, I've said it before, but the thing I'm most interested in this season to watch is, as we go on. But like I said, I fully expect Rask is going to, you know, start to bounce back here and get closer to what we expect from him. So that that's our, our big goalie controversy. There isn't one really yet with an asterisk there may be down the road but uh, as of right now Tuka's still your starter Halak's still better than people think he was going to be and, and that's where we're at we'll bring it back towards uh, you know the local team um, did want touch on a couple things um you know the first is that i did want to sort of pump the tires of the bruins organization and their annual military night um i I've tweeted about this and it's just something i wanted to put out here for listeners um every year the bruins do a game um, where they honor uh the military uh this year it's going to be on november 5th against dallas stars um if you're a season ticket holder and you want to donate seats to you know, service members through the USO, which is a military um, support organization, you can do so. Uh, there is a contact person at the Bruins. It's Tina Anderson. She can be reached at tanderson at bostonbruins.com. Um, even if you are not a season ticket holder, you can purchase seats and donate them to service members. Um, I have, uh, you know, gone through that as a veteran. I've, I've been a part of that. It's a great program, um, you know, to be able to go and catch a game 
Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's a great night. It's awesome that the Bruins do it. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me or to the Bruins, um, you know, to Tina at the Bruins. There's also the eight spoke salute, which is something that if you've been to a Bruins game in person, you've probably seen and that they honor a local um, military member there. That's open. You can nominate a, you know, friend or family member, uh, someone, you know, who's in the military. There's just a form. You can do that at NHL.com slash Bruins slash community slash eight dash spoke dash salute. That's also a great opportunity. I have been part of that as well. Um, you know, it's just a, it's a cool way to sort of to show your appreciation towards someone, like I said, whether it's a friend or a family, if you want to do that. Um, so I just wanted to signal boost that for those of you who are either in the military yourself or you have friends or family who are currently serving. Um, so just wanted to get that out there. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of the Bruin, you know, we, we've gone through five games you know, the Bruins are currently sitting um, in second place in the Atlantic, eight points, two behind Toronto, who is active tonight as we're recording this. But I'm curious if you guys uh, think that they've exceeded expectations, met expectations, or, or a little behind expectations in terms of what you expected to start the season. Just a quick note on that, Toronto is already up 2 to nothing for – <laughs> anyone who wants to know yeah, when exactly shock, we're recording that team <laughs> so, goals. I, have, I have a feeling we'll see that a lot exactly this <laughs> but i think that you can say it both that they've both underperformed and overperformed you look at it on a game-by-game basis that um opening game against the capitals they severely underperformed. It looked like it was an ECHL team on there. It's not even an AHL team. It just looked pathetic from a full 60-minute effort. And they rightfully gave up seven goals to the defending Stanley Cup champions. But everywhere else, I think they've overperformed. I think that the top line, as amazing as it is, is overperforming to some level. And it's a matter of when, not if, they'll regress. Um the other lines, the depth lines, are somewhat underperforming, and it's a matter of whether they'll rise up to the occasion or whether they're not underperforming, and it actually is just the norm that they play at. So there's aspects you can draw from both sides of it, and it's turned into a pretty interesting four games to see what part of the overperforming can compensate for what's underperforming. And it's worked well against four run-of-the-mill teams. Um, I mean, I guess they're performing at expectation. Uh, you don't, you don't want to see game like Washington where they lost 7 nothing, but um, you know if you told me that the Bruins lost to Washington I wouldn't be like too surprised right like that's kind of like a 50-50 game that's a good good matchup but you know playing arguably the four worst teams in the league uh, you really want to beat those teams so sitting at 4-1 and one, I mean it's kind of an expectation um, and yeah, like like Jake said, like there's things in the in the team, you know, certain things that you know are overperforming and underperforming, and they'll probably you know sort of mesh. But you know, the team's sitting at four and one. Uh, I would have kind of expected that, uh, you know, beginning of October going into the season. Yeah, I I I fall pretty firmly in the meets expectations. I don't, you know, I. You know, their record is good at four and one and, you know, it's great. But uh, again, I don't think they've really played any great teams so far. And as we all know, if, for people who followed the league for a long time, the, the opening few games of the season tend to be sort of random at best as it is. 
So, you know, there's not bad, you know, they've, they've done well, but I also don't think that they really exceeded my expectations and they won't until we see them play against some of the, the better teams, even if it's, you know, even the flyers or, or definitely the predators. And once we get into some of those matchups, we'll have a better feel for where they're at. But like we mentioned, sort of at the opening of this, the, their depth scoring is a little bit of a concern for me. You know, right now, Bergeron and, and uh, his pals there are, are scoring at a incredible but highly unsustainable pace. And, you know, if they're going to, if they're going to win at what we expect them to do, they're going to need to get contributions from other areas in the lineup. That does bring me to uh, one of my favorite topics and one that I could, could record a whole episode on alone, but you know, with Bergeron having such a strong start, already has 11 points in five games, you know, was at a point per game almost exactly pace last year. I believe he had uh, 63 points in 64 games, if memory serves me correct. You know, and he was very, very seriously mentioned as a heart candidate last year before getting hurt and losing time and injury. You know, do either of you think that, uh, you know, he's a legit candidate if he can stay healthy this year? Um. I don't know. I, it depends if uh, McDavid gets a leg chopped off. Uh, <laughs> I like. I just don't. McDavid, I, I, McDavid deserved it last year, in my opinion. So and he'll probably end up deserving it again this year. Like he's just that good. He's gonna be the best player in the league year in and year out. Uh, it's just a matter of if the team makes the playoffs of whether McDavid in the race, and if not, like yeah, I think. I think Bergeron, if he stays healthy, is is a hard candidate. But yeah, and I, I use the word candidate specifically because you know, like you said, McDavid is alive. He has both legs. <laughs> He's probably going to be the favorite and should rightfully be the favorite. You know, at least for the next two, three, four, five years, whatever it may be. And you know, he's incredible. Uh, we all know that. But I think in terms of you know, runner-up or third or fourth, you know, in that finalist conversation. I mean, I, personally, I think that Bergeron was, was borderline, even with his injury in that conversation last year. So I, I think, you know, if he keeps the scoring up, we all know what he can do defensively. He very, very well could be a finalist for the first time this year. Jake, did you, did you think that as well, or you think he's sort of on the outside looking in? I think he's on the outside looking in. I would go top five, not top three, because Connor McDavid still exists. Austin Matthews still exists and has been bored, and Sidney Crosby still plays hockey. So I think those guys get so much notoriety. And that's to say that the heart is a popularity contest because Bergeron is incredible and certainly deserves mention. But it's a little bit of a popularity contest. And as much as I love Patrice, he's not always in the mainstream media, whereas you get those three guys and they're everywhere in hockey headlines. You don't go a day without seeing one of those three in the national news. So that would probably end up being the top three, but I certainly see where you guys are coming from that Bergeron absolutely deserves a mention. Yeah. In that and conversation. It, you know, those are the usual, usual suspects, but there's also obviously the, the Kopitar's obviously Taylor Hall, you know, there, there are plenty of other, you know, elite, right. Elite players that are obviously going to be in the, in the chase, but uh, one of the things that we obviously know here following his career, but really none of those players, even Kopitar, you know, has the impact all around that Bergeron does, especially if Bergeron's going to be a point-per-game player, if he can sustain that. 
uh, you know, this year. So that's where I come from. I look at that and say, if Bergeron scores 75 plus points and is still the best defensive forward in the, in the game, uh, you know, it's hard to not look at that and say he shouldn't be a finalist. Uh, so, I mean, I don't think we see last year's heart winner in the conversation. I think that Taylor Hall overperformed. And I think that Nico Heischer underperformed, or it took him a long time to get his feet under him. So I think that the, I, uh, the point differential between the both of them was something like 40 points between the first and second highest point getters for the New Jersey Devils, which is absolutely absurd. So I think Hall regresses and Heischer takes the next step and they both meet in the middle. But to me, that takes Taylor Hall out of my heart conversation. Yeah, I mean, like, there's going to be, you know, five to ten probably players that are our favorites, you know, even as the season starts. I think he's in there, but you're right. He may not be one who, who's in the top five or so at the end of the year. You know, he had a, a year last year that, yeah, I don't know if he can replicate unless you're Connor McDavid, in which case, you know, that's sort of your, your every year. But, you know, it is interesting, like I said, when I look at players, I've tried to look at uh, sort of the holistic view of what they bring to the table and um, sort of giving a, a unsolicited shout outs to uh, to Micah on his website, hockeyviz.com. But he released his new model called Magnus. And uh, one of the things that does is it sort of, you know, it, it, it mathematically isolates players' performances uh, from their teammates or quality competition, their zone usage um, and score effects. And looking at that and, and Bergeron comes out to be you know, in the third or fourth best forward range in the league in terms of, you know, what that model sees as well. And I, that's been my view for years, despite getting trashed for it at various times for saying that Bergeron's the third or fourth best uh, forward in the league. But I think we're, we're finally coming to a point where, you know, even people who are not fans of the Bruins are starting to recognize that Bergeron deserves to be in that, you know, that top five, at worst top 10 forwards uh, discussion in the league. So, you know, selfishly for us who followed his whole career, it would be great to see him get that uh, national recognition, you know, at that level. But as we all know, he's really – he's not here for the individual accolades. He, he's very much looking for team success. So if, if he gets a team success, he'll be happy no matter what. But it's something I'll have my eye on. It's something I've always found interesting. And I, I think he's been underrepresented in terms of, you know, all-star voting and, and MVP voting and things like that. So it'll be interesting to watch. Um we will wrap up the episode at this point. I did want to thank both of uh, you fine gentlemen for being on um, again, follow both of them on Twitter at the Sean Ferris and at Jake Reiser. Um, if you're not already, for some reason you should be follow Stanley cup of chowder at cup of chowder, follow the podcast website at SB unsupervised. That is S O U P. Um, and you can also follow me if, if you have any desire to do so at C Beswick. Uh, thanks for listening. As always, make sure to, to uh, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Google Play. We're everywhere at this point that you can listen to a podcast. And if you have a spare moment, feel free to give us a rating and, and give us some suggestions. We're always open to listener feedback, uh, questions, uh, things of that nature. So uh, thanks again for listening.